Hey everybody, welcome to Mindful Social. And I'm really excited this week to have Jenny Blake. I can't tell you how much you need to read her book, but I'm gonna let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about the book, because this isn't about me, it's about Jenny. So Jenny, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Thank you, Janet. I wrote Pivot because I wasn't feeling very resilient in the face of change. And this was somewhat ironic because I had been studying careers and transitions for almost 10 years. I worked at a startup. My first book was called Life After College. Then I worked at Google in training and eventually coaching and career development for five and a half years. But it wasn't until I left Google in 2011 when my first book came out and went out on my own that running my own business, this time when I was confronted with the question of what's next, to fund this, this latest existential crisis. And it, it frustrated me. And, it, and not only did it frustrate me, I started to get very scared about how to pay the bills and how I was gonna stay in business and whether or not I could stay in New York. And so it felt like an imperative to not just answer what's next in that moment, but get better at it in the future because I couldn't envision a career where I was gonna be miserable every two years or that I felt like something was wrong with me. So pivot is a way to, I created a method to map and continually look at what's next and do it in a way that is mindful and less stressful than it currently is. And, and that so, for so many of us, we see pivots or change as a problem. And I want to reframe that conversation into something where we're proud to pivot and pivots large and small. They don't have to be drastic. They don't have to be overwhelming. And how do we reduce risk? so that when we make those bigger moves, we feel really confident in doing that. I just love the book so much. I, I listened to it, actually I've listened to it I think three times now, because I love audiobooks. Wow. That's <laughs> and, amazing, uh, you know, thank you. Oh, it was wonderful, and, and I'm kind of a career pivoter. Um, and I've, got, I've had weird pivots. You know, I was a horse trainer and then a chef, and then I went into tech, and people don't wow. really get those, but they all made sense to me. Um, Wait, and I, think I meet a lot of people. <laughs> That's I mean, a lot of people what do you with think? similar stories. What do you think horse trainer, chef, and then the move to tech, what do they all have in common? Because that is amazing. It's just following your passions. And, mm. and I think that's really crucial that, you know, you just go with it. But it's been very painful many times. Mm. And I, I'm hoping that for this next pivot that, you know, I'm really going to be better prepared and I really feel better prepared. So why don't we talk about that in how, you know, when you're starting to kind of feel the itch, you're starting to feel a little dissatisfied with where you are and you're starting to think maybe your hobby's looking really good. What, mm. how do we look at that? How do we make choices that are smarter than just quitting your job and going for it? Well, yes, this is a great question. And first I'll speak to, I love hearing you say I'm a career pivoter. There have been a number of people who have come up to me at book signings and said, I've been pivoting my whole life and I always thought there was something wrong with me. And so now people who used to be the outlier, people who, who in the past were framed by the media as reckless or job hoppers or couldn't make up their mind or doing a million things now actually they're the most equipped and the most prepared and these are the pivot pros these are the people who had the courage to 
to adjust and change and be agile. And now it's, they're so well set up. So anyone who is watching this who thinks, oh, I've been pivoting my whole life or I'm a career pivoter, now's your time to shine, which is really mm -hmm. exciting. And the rest of us are just trying to catch up with you <laughs> now. <laughs> so to your question about when you start to feel restless, what do we do? Career changes in general, and, and business pivots seem to threaten our most fundamental needs on Maslow's hierarchy, food, clothing, and shelter. So inherently, there's a lot of fear that comes in with the question, what's next? And the fear is magnified when we put pressure on ourselves to have the entire solution up front. And in the past, because we were working off of a career ladder metaphor in our minds, it felt like we had to make the most perfect right decision. Otherwise, we somehow fall off the ladder into oblivion and never to come back. So instead, in the book, I use the analogy of a basketball player that they stop dribbling, they're grounded, one foot is firmly planted, and that's your strengths and who you already know and what you're already good at, what you bring to the table. And then the pivot foot can scan for opportunities. So, and then the third stage of the method is about piloting small experiments. And that's really the key. When you start to feel stuck, or you just feel restless, or you feel a sense of new excitement that bubbles up, this thing that you're insanely curious about or you can't stop reading about and seeking out information of who you meet when and what information and what signs pop out from ads surrounding you. Those are clues. And the best way to test those clues is small experiments. And instead of feeling like we need to pivot, do a 180 on a dime, you know, or, or make these really sharp pivots, Running small experiments can help us answer what I call the three E's. Do I enjoy this new area? Can I become an expert at it? And is there room to expand in the market? So at the stuck point, it's about looking for what is already working, what am I good at, what's out there, what's exciting to me, and how can I test things before making some big leap decision? Ideally, through the pivot method, there is no leap moment because you've already tested so much that these experiments take on a natural momentum of their own. Mm -hmm. So how do we define uh, how small should those experiments be? And is that something that we should be doing in our part-time while we're off, you know, working 24 seven on a job? How do we, how do we find that Yeah, there, it's, um, I think that we underestimate how much we can accomplish with very small chunks of time. And I don't, mm -hmm. when I say I think, I know for myself, I certainly do that. I did a challenge while I was writing the book to write for 15 minutes a day for 30 days. And I didn't even finish the challenge, but in two weeks, I was amazed at how much I had gotten done. And this is what I mean by taking the pressure off to have to bite off huge chunks. So even the smallest increment of time, whenever I'm hearing someone talk about an idea or a pivot, I look for the smallest increment. Or in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, we call it the minimum viable product. That's Eric Reese really popularized that concept in his book, The Lean Startup. What's the MVP? What is the minimum viable test that you can run that, that you feel excited to implement? So if someone's starting a new business, can you sell one thing, just one thing? If you're trying to, someone's starting a coaching practice, take on one client. 
There's no need to wait until a website and a brand and all the marketing and everything is in place. Start very small and just start doing it and, and see about enjoying the process and learning just from the process alone, regardless of the outcome. That's really great. And, and I think, you know, that, that helps us have smaller disappointments as well. Um, I think, you know, when you do a really big pivot or you just quit your job and whatever it is that you're going to do, painful because it can be very lonely because you've really abandoned all of the rest of the stuff that you depended on beforehand. Uh, you know, so how do we, all our pivots can can help us out a lot yeah yeah and it's so true what you said like it is very stressful to think about shutting everything down it's a very linear way of thinking about change is that i can only do this thing i want when i quit my job or when i have the money if this then that and really the better thing is in parallel. So I share a concept in the book called redundancy. This is about having systems running in parallel. Another way to think about it is a career portfolio. I talk to a lot of people who feel like they're doing something wrong if they have multiple sources of income, as in they're pursuing multiple passions that have nothing to do with each other, or they have a day job, or they have a part-time job, or they have some gig that pays the bills, but it's not their love. That's brilliant because in doing so, that thing that's paying the bills is the incubator for the experiments. It's paying, it is funding the experiments and it's critical to have that. It's much more stressful to try and unpack a pivot and follow clues when you upfront immediately place the pressure to earn a living from it. That is very, very hard to do. And some people might thrive on that amount of pressure, but I've found for most people, Embrace the part-time job, embrace the gig that pays the bills, embrace the things you're already good at. And don't, again, don't, if we don't put the pressure to have it be 100% of our career portfolio, we can see it as investments. And some of our investments, the things, the ways we're spending our time are safer and they provide security. Some are riskier and they're more fun. And so you can look at this pie and divide it into three or four or five slices and embrace that diversity. I like that a lot. And and how do we measure after we run these experiments? Is it just a gut feeling whether it worked or not? Or do we set up, uh, you know, take a baseline and then set up metrics that we're going to use for measurement? It depends how each individual is defining success. So for a pivoter who wants to change jobs, the measurement might be, okay, that I'm in the new job that I'm really excited about. Excuse me one second. Sorry about that, getting over a cough, so these things can be persistent. Um, the other thing I would say is, is, so for some people it's about money, earning a certain amount of income from their side hustle. For others it's timing, just I want to make this move at, by a certain date and that's success. So it's really helpful if when setting out to do experiments, you can, each person can look within and say, what is most important to me here? In some cases, you're not even going to know. It might just be a feeling. It might just be a feeling of momentum and maybe even taking the pressure off altogether to have success be anything other than but that alone creates a sense of excitement and enthusiasm and growth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, um, I wrote this book for people I call high net growth individuals. 
that we've heard the term high net worth, people who've accumulated a lot of financial resources in their lifetime. But for people who are high net growth, we're not just in it for the outcome. We are in it to feel alive and to feel that we are learning and growing and ultimately making an impact. And so if those things are happening, success is really on the inside. And the metrics that come from the external world are nice to have at that point, not things that we're desperate to have. Oh, I love that. And that brings me to another question. And this, this happens a lot with people who pivot. Um, you know, you kind of sky things, you tell your friends, you talk to your family, and they're all like, are you nuts? What are you thinking? You know, or they'll say, well, no, you, you shouldn't do it the way you're thinking about doing it. You should do it the way that I think is really important for you to do it. And so they really they subliminally derail you. I don't even know if it's subliminal at that point. You know, how do how do we deal with those people who tell us but want to derail us? I know it's it's and it's interesting because it tends to come from the people closest to us. That it's often our friends and family who <clears throat> because they love us most want to keep us safe. And so they're the mm -hmm. ones that they're optimizing for safety and security. Whereas our values in the moment and as high net growth individuals is growth and freedom and pursuing passions, as you said earlier. So part of it is to, it's, it's good to listen to other people's in, input and, and take that in. The, <coughs> excuse me. Oh man, sorry about this cough. What I have found that is, when people get the most triggered by what friends and family have to say or them being naysayers, um, it's because it's activating a fear that we already have within ourselves. And so that person saying, oh, what are you doing? You're crazy. It wouldn't affect us if there wasn't a part of us that also felt that way. I know when I was thinking of leaving Google, my mom didn't agree with my decision and she still doesn't, which surprised me when I was working on the book. And I said, mom, you know, now that you see how things have worked out. I'm about to celebrate my six year anniversary in business. Um, <coughs> you know, now do you see why I did the decision? She said, no, I still don't agree. So, you know, even <laughs> six years in, she still would, would have said that she th thinks I should have stayed there longer. And that's fine, we agree to disagree. But what I needed to mm -hmm. do in the moment to, to leave her voice in my head was, I, I wrote a business plan for my inner CFO because that's what I named the part of myself that was terrified. My inner CFO at the time was saying, are you crazy? What are you thinking leaving the six-figure job? And you think you can start your own business and make yourself happier than Google? No way. So <coughs> that business plan, I was able to show my inner CFO what my steps were gonna be, and in turn, could then say to my mom, you know, I got this, just trust me on this one. You know, that's, that's an aspect of the book that I really appreciated because I am not a very good planner. I tend to just go with the passion that I'm following at the moment. And, you know, it's led to a lot of iterations of my business, but it's also led to the failures that I learned from <laughs> after that. So, you know, it's really uh, the steps that you have in the book I thought were really great and, and really uh, you know who your inner CFO is and who else you need to talk to in there because you know we we either tend to go off full tilt or you know sometimes we just get so scared we don't do it and we sit and <clears throat> no I'm coughing 
Excuse me. It can't be contagious over the airways. <laughs> then we've really figured out a mind meld from coast to coast. <laughs> but I have to say, I'm glad you brought up failure because this holds a lot of people back. And I, one of the most common questions that I get when I'm coaching people or speaking to them about pivoting is they say, what if I fail? What if I don't succeed? And to that I ask, really, what is your definition of failure? And <clears throat> for so many of us, looking back at, at times in our career that things didn't work out, or maybe you got pivoted or got laid off, or you started a business and it didn't work, so often there's almost no one I've talked to that looks back and says, I wish that didn't happen, that actually it was a blessing in disguise, and it was the catalyst that I needed to get back on track. And I had been veering off. I, I've been very curious about people who get laid off from their jobs, and, and this is not at all to diminish how stressful and traumatic that is. But when I've asked people, was there a part of you that wanted to leave? What I most often hear is, oh yeah. Oh, I was so ready to leave. I just didn't have the courage to do it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm a little anxious, but I'm so glad this, I needed this, I needed this kick. And so reframing failure when we look back at our careers, and I have some clients who feel I'm, I'm gun shy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've tasted failure, it hurts, it hurts. I don't, I don't want to make those same mistakes. So looking at the move ahead to just ask, okay, what, what truly is failure? What is the worst case scenario? What would you do in order if things aren't working out as planned? And, and when we know that, when we actually confront the worst case scenario, it makes it, it takes the sting out of it. Instead of a cloudy fog of fear that we don't know what to do with, it becomes, and I remember my editor, she wanted to take the worst case scenario planning out of the financial chapter because as you know, Janet, there's a chapter on pivot finances. And um, I told her, no, no way. Like we, we need to be real with people that your worst case scenario might happen. So what are you gonna do if it does? And does it still make it worth it for you to proceed with your pivot? Person I spoke with, not one person regretted their launch decision ultimately. When I say launch, I mean the fourth stage of the pivot method where you go all in on the new direction. And even people who ended up having to pivot again shortly thereafter, look back and said, I'm so glad I did it, that every decision brings us more data, that we get a new vantage point, new clues, new learning, especially from failure. Failure is, quote, failure, because really it's the most beautiful teacher that then mm. helps us move even more inspired into the new direction yeah if if we can look at failure as a way you know as as part of agile development okay that didn't work i'm gonna go over here now you know that that really helps us to um progress because otherwise you know if you if you just get create a box that you can live in and that you can work in and that's going to get everything done for you that's so boring right right Who wants to live like that it's true <laughs> It's true. That's, you know, that was one of the things I, I, I felt writing the book and, and talking to pivoters and everyone watching a webinar like this one, uh, an interview like this one, that we would be so bored. If we already knew all the answers, we already knew exactly how to get where we're going, how to earn what we want to earn, how to make the impact we want to make. We would be Either we would be doing it, we'd be joyful, or we would be bored if we just had all the answers handed to us overnight. And so, you said it's part of this agile career approach and 
if we can embrace the fact that we don't know, you know, there's something that the, I believe it's Buddhist, it's either Buddhist, Taoist, but they call the don't know mind. And I love this. And it's about resting in the don't know mind that we don't, we stop judging ourselves and we stop judging the moment and we stop judging uncertainty as problems or personal shortcomings. And instead with don't know mind, it's, I don't know. And you don't know until you know. And when you're clear on your next move and what your next experiment is going to be or the next direction to take, you move into it naturally. But we stop, we drop the layer of beating ourselves up in the meantime. And in embracing this don't know mind and the don't know path and the don't know career, we can really live and be in the moment. And I, I know I wrote the book about figuring out what's next and your next move. The reason the subtitle is the only move that matters is your next one is because what I found for me, that's what helps me stay in a relative sense of don't know mind. That if I just can focus on the one next move, that's enough. I don't have to know after that and after that because life is so complex and it's constantly changing. So even a year from now, we're going to get all new variables and information. And so in a way, we can all relax a little bit. But yes, it's a little more adventurous, let's call it, to put it, to put it, you know, positively, of living at this edge of uncertainty, but there's so much opportunity there, and it's so much more dynamic and exciting, just as you described, Janet. Yeah, and I think taking those small steps is really key to that, because, you know, if you have a huge failure, it's going to hurt a lot more and take a lot more recovery time than, you know, doing these small experiments to kind of get ready for that, and, and we really do have to realize that, for me, the days of the business plan are over. Right. Because by the time you get done writing your business plan, you're changing it again. So why bother? <laughs> it's so true. And and the technology is changing all the time. And you know, even this idea in the career space, there's a lot of pressure to what is your purpose or what's your mission? And I don't even think we need to have that. If you do, if some people do, that's amazing. Mine has always been be as helpful as possible to as many people as possible. So well, I, I, I always feel like, <laughs> yeah, like, but it, and it's so broad that, that it's like in any moment of my life, I can just ask in this moment, how can I be most helpful? Mm -hmm. And sometimes like now, you know, the book launched in September, I'm in more of a retreat phase and the way to be helpful. Um, the, yes, the book is out and getting things out, but, but for now, it's more of an incubation phase, but that the mission remains of asking, how can I serve? And that's, that's a question that people who are high net growth have on their mind. How can I serve? What can I give? What kind of impact can I make? Mm -hmm. And if we let that be the guiding question, it takes, it provides clarity and it takes some of the stress off of what is the best business plan to have? Because I will say when I, when that was my primary focus and it's good, it's good to have the tactical side and be smart about our businesses and side hustles. But when that was the only question I was asking, I didn't really get anywhere. And instead, when I really put my ear to the ground and listened, what's out there? What are people struggling with? Myself included. You know, we can all look to ourselves as patient zero. And Certainly. Whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever challenges you've experienced or proceed to being able to solve it. Even just looking at challenges or failures and how we've unpacked them and moved forward, um, I think is is a helpful way to come up with the, what I call the project-based purpose. Just know why you're doing whatever it is you're doing for the next 
two years or for the duration of the project. And then you can reevaluate. Mm. That, you know, that brings something really interesting to mind too, because, you know, we tend to plan out so far in, ahead and, you know, if we can be a little more agile with how we approach things and really approach it with a service oriented mindset, then you develop your marketing plan or your outreach based on who it is you're trying to serve. And you're much more effective at reaching that. And I think you feel instantly more successful when you hear people come back and go, yeah, that, that is incredibly powerful. And you do that because you've, you've narrowed your niche instead of trying to boil the ocean, right. with, you know, huge picture stuff that just isn't going right. to happen. And I also love, you know, the, the, your message about mindful, mindful social and mindfulness mm -hmm. that, that, it wasn't until I started a daily meditation practice that I started to connect more clearly with the answers to these questions and, and create space for myself. So instead of spinning out over all this stuff, I became more focused and more centered and more clear on how to serve or how I could serve or what people needed. And so I think that's a big one too, especially when pivoting is how do you create space for yourself to even hear yourself think and not your busy beehive mind but the, the self the true self your higher self um inner wisdom we all have such you know it depends on one's own spiritual beliefs but how do you listen to that voice in you that that knows that already knows the answer and that there are a lot a lot of times when i talk to people in a pivot mm. they say i just don't know i'm just so lost well deep down in your gut there's a voice and and whenever i say what does your gut say really just listen and i wait in that awkward silence they know and it's just sometimes scary so the other thing i would say is listening to that that inner wisdom and that instinct and intuition separate that from the pressure to have to do anything about it because sometimes i think we pretend we can't even hear that voice at all just so we don't have to take the scary steps that follow but if you can say you know what i'm gonna give myself space i'm gonna listen to my intuition hear what it's saying to me and I don't have to do anything about it until I'm ready, then at least we can hear it and have that information to guide the next steps. Oh, yeah. And when you do give yourself that space and, and pause and have that uncomfortable silence with yourself for a little bit, it's amazing yeah. the things that come to you. Oh, my gosh. Really yes. yes. Yeah. I'm so curious how you pivoted either from being a horse trainer into becoming a chef or from chef into tech like these are such uh, from the outside because I find that from the outside they look like huge pivots but that knowing you there's probably a connecting thread and and that's certainly something about pivoting that, that when we look backward we can say oh yeah here was the thing that got me from A to B yeah you know it's for me it's I get dissatisfied with where I am and I start thinking okay what do I want to do next and I start looking for what I want to do. And um, I had gone to school for horses, um, light horse management. I, I dropped out of vet school, started training horses, and then I got dissatisfied with how they were treating the horses. And I cast around and found a job as a baker. The next thing I knew, I was moving up the ranks in restaurants. So it, it's really just a whim, honestly. I hope that it's a little more planned this time. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it, it is interesting to see how talking to people about it, you know, they, they talk about their own passions and where they would go if they had the chance to go. And I'm, I've been sharing your book quite a lot, actually, because oh, I'm saying, you. you know, you should read this because it, it helps kind of gel why mm. you're just sitting there feeling like you're stuck. And oh, yeah. I absolutely adore that. Oh, well, thank you so much. That means so much. And <laughs> it is interesting because a lot of people, especially go-getters, action-oriented types, the moment we realize we're at a pivot point or we've hit a plateau, which again is often a product of our success as much as anything. It's not that you've done something wrong. It's you've outgrown your current career incarnation, but, but people's often their instinct is I'm at a pivot point. What's out there. And the first thing they start doing is looking outside of themselves. And that is what creates that sense of analysis paralysis or compare and despair. And so when we reel it back and say, where am I? You know, this is the plant foot that I described in the basketball analogy. What's already working? Even if it's only five or 10% of your day or your week, what does bring you joy? When do you feel most in the zone? What lights you up? What my friend Neil calls it the Saturday morning test. What do you do on Saturday mornings when you think you have no one to answer to? What is your, the reading mm. that you choose that you're drawn to? And so that's kind of who we already are. And then looking ahead to this one year vision, it's, really what does success look like? How do I want to feel? How do I want to grow? How do I want to learn? How do I want to make an impact? And so for you, Janet, it sounds like you did have such clear sparks that were saying, oh, how about this? How about learning about baking or experimenting? And then it naturally, and that's what's so cool about it is once we're really grounded in things that are, that are so strongly connected to who we are and what we're interested in, those things start to develop a momentum of their own. Um, I love metaphors, so I'll switch, switch once again, but when we have these pilots, I think of them like racehorses at the Kentucky Derby. We actually don't know. When we have five or six small experiments lined up, we don't know. We, we open the gates, we set the horses free, and to stick with the horse theme, and, and you see which one pulls out ahead because the pilots themselves start to take on a natural momentum, and as I call it, like the universe rolls out the red carpet, mm -hmm. but as you start taking the steps, you meet the perfect person, you run into the perfect person, you, the perfect book crosses your path. And so that's how we know we're on the right track is that serendipity starts really working and coincidence in our favor. And so every step we take, we get met halfway, the red carpet unfurls one roll further. And so that's that sense that starts to create the momentum snowball on its own. And it's very hard to know that intellectually. I think that's what a lot of yeah. people with career, they try and just think, 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 think and try and think their way into momentum, and it doesn't work that way. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love that you mentioned serendipity because, it, for me, that is really key. And I have a sign on my wall that says, open to receive. And it's really oh, just, just the most amazing things come along at the most unexpected times. And if you're willing to just stop and recognize them, then you can you cannot miss those opportunities but if you're so busy you know laser focusing on what it is that you think you've got to be doing that's going to be a problem and you know it's going to stop you from getting where you want to go you just got to really recognize that those opportunities come up and people will start to show things to you that that they weren't going to show you before because they didn't know you were interested mm -hmm. 
I love that. I love that. It's so, I love the message open to receive. And mm. I started saying to myself, faith in flow. Like just have faith in the flow of my life. There's a, uh, there's a, an intelligence to how things flow and unfold and, and go that there's just have faith in that process. When, we, when I look back at my life, said it was the surprises it was the serendipities that were the game changers they were the mm -hmm. things i could not plan for we can prepare we can put ourselves in a great position for serendipity and for coincidence and these things and especially through mindful practices and mindfulness throughout our day and as you said staying open and and when we do that it is there is such a beautiful flow and unfolding that that is like being on a kayak in the river like we can stop paddling so hard there's a zen saying lift the oars that i've always loved that there is a current there is a flow carrying you forward and and mm. it's okay to lift the oars and see where it's where it's taking us and uh, on the river theme my another zen buddhist saying that i love is don't push the river that, that we're so often oh, yeah. we are rushing things or, or nature doesn't rush a tree it's like there's no need things are unfolding it's beautiful we have seasons in the weather we have seasons in our life and and when it's time for the for the flower to bloom or the pivot to 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 complete itself or this version of it it will and so part of it too is patience that as long as we are taking action and doing these experiments and showing up and staying open just as you said let life and the world and experience do the rest and, and meet you halfway mm -hmm. Mm. I, I have another metaphor for you. I was listening to Tara Brock the other day and she's a meditation teacher who's just, she's brilliant and she's a kayaker and oh, your river <laughs> story reminded me of what she said. And that's that when you're a river kayaker and you've been fighting against the river and, and you're going upstream and it's really hard and you just need a break, you can tuck behind a rock and there's a quiet place right behind the rock where you can rest and then get ready to go back out again. And I think we all need those moments in our lives where it's just, okay, I just need to go sit behind a rock for a minute. Just sit in that quiet pool I love that. and rest. And that's what meditation is for me. It really is that it's moment to reflect and re-energize. Oh, a hundred percent. And that, that tucking behind the rock in the rapids, that rock is always available to us. It is not outside anywhere. We don't have to pay for it. There's no expert that needs to hand it down. The rock is closing your eyes and having a moment of stillness. And there it is. Yeah. And it's, it's always there. And I just came back from, I did a five day silent meditation retreat and I was always so intimidated to do something like that. And mm -hmm. then, so the biggest thing, I couldn't believe it. I felt like a fish dropped into the ocean for the first time. I couldn't believe how much silence I could absorb and how happy it would make me to be surrounded in silence, cocooned in it for five days. So it, it, looking back at times in my life where I thought even five minutes was too long to sit still with my eyes closed, uh, really just puts, yeah. put it in perspective. I just wasn't into the habit of it, but um, it's, it's beautiful when we can sit and give ourselves that space and, and know that, that it's truly, I know it sounds somewhat cliche, but in that moment, in those five minutes that we give ourselves to breathe, everything's fine. You know, mm -hmm. everything's fine. And, and yes, <laughs> so those, those practices have been such a game changer for me too. Yeah, it is really, really powerful.
It really is. Well, I know that you need to run and I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and I, I would in, encourage everyone to get the book. I think I said that once or twice, uh, but why don't you let people know where they can find you, Jenny, and how they can get the, a copy of the book. Well, thank you so much, Janet, for having me. This is so fun and sorry, everyone, for all the coughing. But I'm so glad you're all here watching and listening. There, there's a whole toolkit with a bunch of free templates for various components of this that we've mentioned. That's at pivotmethod.com slash toolkit. And I have a podcast called Pivot Podcast. If any of you listen, wherever you subscribe to podcasts, it should be on there. Just search Pivot Podcast with Jenny Blake. And if you want any one-on-one -on -one support, I have a great team of six pivot coaches and we do a two-session jump start. So if you just want a little more personalized help and attention, that's a great way to initiate things and get off the ground. And then I also do a private community called Momentum. So that's for side hustlers, solopreneurs, if you want that sense of community and ongoing support. And I do twice monthly Q&A calls, and it's a lot of fun. So lots of ways to get in touch. It's all at pivotmethod.com. And yeah, thank you, Janet, for listening to the book. It's on Audible. Um, and just, I look forward to hearing all of your feedback if any of you um, dig in and to hear about all your next steps. Well, thank you again. It's, it's been wonderful to have you. And, and I will share the links on the website, mindfulsocialmarketing.com. And I'll also be sharing this on YouTube and on my podcast on Spreaker for Mindful Social. And uh, thanks again, Jenny. It was really wonderful. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much, Janet. Bye, everybody.